This is a very exciting time for uh, tax policy. Uh, recent presidents have cut taxes a little and increased taxes uh, a little, but this year uh, Republicans are planning the biggest tax reform uh, since 1986. Uh, I'm delighted to be here today with the White House uh, Chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, uh, Kevin Hassett, to talk about tax reform. Uh, Kevin came to the White House from uh, the American Enterprise Institute, where he was for uh, 20 years. Uh, he was the uh, Director of Research for Domestic Policy uh, at AEI. Uh, Kevin really is one of the nation's top experts on uh, tax policy. I've learned a heck of a lot uh, over the years from his uh, writings. Uh, he's got a PhD in economics from, uh, from University of Pennsylvania. He's been an advisor to, uh, to so many uh, uh, candidates for president. I've lost uh, track. Uh, and seeing him on TV in recent weeks, I got to say that uh, the White House has a real um, has a real asset in Kevin uh, in explaining the basics of uh, of tax reform. So I'm delighted to uh, to have him here today. So uh, welcome to, to Cato. And uh, so let's, we're going to talk a little bit about corporate tax reform, uh, then a little bit about individual uh, tax reform, and uh, what the Republicans are proposing uh, in their uh, bill. So Kevin, the uh, you know the world has changed since uh, the 1986. Uh, tax Reform Act, uh, cross-border capital flows have soared, corporate tax rates have fallen around the world. I think the, uh, the average uh, global corporate tax rate now is just 24%. Uh, the Republicans are, are planning to, uh, to drop the federal rate to 20, uh, although, you know, this United States, we've got state taxes uh, on top of that. Um, so there, there's a bit of a, a push now for some Republicans to, uh, to have a bit of a higher rate uh, than the 20%. So how important is it to get that rate down as low as we can, can get in? Well, well, I think that since the, uh, oh, and just first let me thank you for having me here. And, and it's a real pleasure to be here. I've been here often over the years and uh, I've worked closely with you, Chris, as well over, over time. And so it's a real honor to be here. Uh, I think that going back to uh, you know the the beginning of the the tax reform, uh, we started in the summer uh, having meetings where uh, we agreed on basic principles, and um, by the end of that process, uh, when it became really a legislative process, then we at the White House uh, really emphasized uh, from that point on that regular order, uh, the process that our founding fathers envisioned was the way that we wanted this thing legislated and that we would have you know, three or four uh, kind of non-negotiables, uh, some basic principles that came you know, straight from the president, his vision of what the tax reform should look like, but the, the details, the legislative details should be worked out by Congress. But one of our non-negotiables from the beginning has been a 20% rate. It's something the president feels very strongly about. I've not spoken with him about a compromise that might come out of the legislative process, but, but I could anticipate that, that he would be pretty unhappy if you know, he didn't give a whole lot of you know, non-negotiables, but one of them was a 20% rate. Right. And if we were to move off of that, I, I would anticipate that, that that'd be a very difficult call. Right. I, saw, I saw Marco, uh, Senator Rubio on uh, TV last night uh, on Fox, and he said, well, there's no difference between a 20 and a 20% corporate tax rate. Uh, but you know, everything in economics is sort of at the margin. There would be a bit of a marginal difference there. It would, getting yeah. it down to 20, you would lower the, uh, you know, the, the hurdle rate a little bit more. There'd be more investments that would be profitable. Is that not to... Yeah, that's right. And, and, and so, uh, you, you know, again, I, we respect the legislative process. We know that, that uh, a bill that fails is unthinkable. We've got the least right. competitive corporate tax environment on earth, and we can't expect to move 
uh, you know, on a sustained basis off of 2% growth if we don't become a competitive environment. Uh, but if you want to think about like just being an, an economist, not a person who's given political advice to anybody right. uh, about this, but it is doing economic analysis that, uh, you know, we estimated in a couple of studies uh, the impact on the economy of the corporate side of this. Right. That's what we're talking about now is the corporate side. And uh, one of the linchpins of our analysis is that we think that if you include uh, the user cost of capital for structures and for intangibles and for equipment, that all told you're talking, and you account for the fact that there's expensing and so on too, right? That you get about a 15% reduction in the user cost of capital. Uh, and uh, that leads to uh, you know, maybe three to 5% higher GDP 10 years right. from now. Uh, if we uh, were to go to a 22% rate, it would soften that a little bit. And I think that our range of three to five would probably go to something like two and a half to four and a half. Right. Uh, and, and so that it would, it would actually be a negative for growth if you were to go up there. But, but it wouldn't take away the benefit of the whole thing. And so, you know, I would take two and a half to five, four and a half over doing nothing. Right. But yeah, as an economist, I mean, that's a trade that someone would want to make, but, right. but, but I can't predict you know, the outcome of the political process. So, so one of the issues you, you hear raised is people will say, uh, well, what do we need to lower uh, the, uh, you can lower the statutory or legal uh, corporate tax rate, but uh, you know, a lot of corporations, they don't, they pay uh, a lower rate now because of all the loopholes in the code. And what people are referring to is that the, the average rate on a lot of corporations is lower than the 35% rate. But I mean, for, for um, capital investment and uh, international tax competition, it's the, the marginal effective rate that, that uh, is driving uh, the investment flows, uh, isn't it? And so uh, that's, uh, and, and we have one of the highest uh, marginal effective rates. We do. And, and well, there, there's uh, a big literature on this. Mike Devereaux at uh, Oxford is, actually has a, a center for business taxation where they go through all this stuff in, in lots of detail. We've relied a lot on their analysis and our own analysis because we think that uh, as you know, a passion of mine uh, at, before I went to CEA is always to have replicable, transparent work. And you know, I think that relying on you know something like the Oxford uh, Business Taxation Center's uh, own models uh, to figure out what our user cost effects are going to be is something is something that's very transparent right, and replicable. Right. But uh, I think that if you go and look at Devereaux's work, that there are lots of different tax rates that matter depending on what type of thing you're trying to model. Right. Uh, if you want to model the location of a new plant then it's the average tax rate that matters. But if you're trying to model the, what, you know, if a firm is trying to put a machine in the US or in say Ireland, right. then the marginal user costs might matter. I think that the basic thing that I find most striking in the international tax data is that the corporate tax rate, uh, there's a clear Laffer curve effect in the corporate tax space. There've been a number of papers on this, including one uh, early one by Alex Brill and myself. Okay. Uh, yeah. And uh, there's been a whole bunch of replication in Canadian provinces and US states and so on. And and uh, even a recent OECD paper that finds that there's a Laffer curve for the corporate tax space. And so I think that we're clearly on the wrong side of the Laffer curve here right. in the US. Uh, and that, uh, so that, that a lot of times when people say, oh geez, well, there's all these loopholes, so you don't really have much revenue from that high corporate tax, and so why are you giving them a tax cut? Because they're not really paying much. Well, it's like the whole point of the Laffer Curve. The way they avoid paying the tax is they locate the activity somewhere else, and so the US loses activity, loses wages, loses profits. Mm -hmm loses taxes, right. uh, and if we were to lower the rate, then we could win those things back. I would guess that the peak of the Laffer curve right now, uh, looking at the data, is probably somewhere around 
27%. Right. And so we would increase revenue down to there and then reduce it uh, right. down to 20. So, so I think that the revenue loss from this is going to be pretty small right. uh, compared to, say, the joint tax estimates based on the international tax evidence. Right. So, so you used a couple of phrases there. I just want to uh, define a little bit. Uh, the, the Council of Economic Advisors came out with two uh, really nice uh, studies in October uh, looking at the economic effects of business uh, tax reduction. And you're talking about the user cost of capital. You're talking there about the, you know, the hurdle rate for investment of Businesses look to the future. They look at the after-tax returns by building new factory or buying more equipment, and they're they're looking at that after-tax return. And if you lower uh, the tax rate, it it, in, it incentivizes them now to to uh, do that additional uh, investment. And uh, sure, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, so one of the other issues that you you hear people raise, they'll um, uh, they'll say that well, you know, the economy is doing well. Uh, U.S. corporations are sitting on a big pile of uh, cash now. A lot of them are. They're very profitable. Why do they need a tax cut? Right. Well, I, I think that uh, you know the economy up until you know this year has been you know very much disappointing, right. uh, and that uh, if you look at real wage growth, it's been you know as bad as you've ever seen in a recovery, uh, and this is not a uh, partisan issue. Uh, that, you know, if you were to ask, uh, you know, go to any think tank in town from the left to the right and say, do you think that, you know, the typical middle class guy has been keeping up with the economy, that wages have been growing at a rate that's comparable to what they used to do? Right. And then everybody would say no. Um, in work that we did at CEA, we found a, a really interesting disconnect uh, that is this, that, that historically, uh, if profits go up, then wages go up. And if profits go down, then wages go down. And if profits are slow, then wages are slow. And the correlation is really almost was almost perfect. Hmm. Uh, but the link between profit growth and wage growth has just disconnected. We estimate a structural break that happened maybe 15 years ago. Uh, and uh, that disconnect means that profit growth has been 11% a year uh, over the last eight years, but real wage growth has been almost non-existent. Um, and uh, that disconnect is historically unprecedented. If you start to uh, dig uh, down and try to figure out why that happened, then you could actually see uh, a clear explanation. And the clear explanation is this, that, that uh, typically what's happened is that when we get profit growth, then firms uh, say, oh, geez, I'm doing well. I've got to expand my business, and I'm going to buy a bunch of capital. I'm going to buy a whole bunch of new machines or you know, build some new buildings so I have new stores someplace right. or something like that. And uh, this capital deepening, on average, has added about a percent a year to real wage growth since the Second World War. Um, in the second half of the Obama administration, capital deepening's contribution to real wage growth went negative for the first time in U.S. history. So imagine, like they actually went negative, so, so that there was more depreciation of machines in a typical year uh, than there was investment. And so the workers' productivity couldn't go up because they're actually using worse machines and fewer machines for the first time in history. And, and, and so it's interesting, though, to think then that we had this point where profits have been soaring but capital deepening has gone negative in the U.S. for the first time in history. And why? Why would you have both of those? So you, like, you could imagine if profits were tanking and there was no capital deepening, then it would all make sense. And if you dig deeper into the data, you can see that what's happened is that the profits are not in the U.S. So those right. profits that have been growing 11% a year are in Ireland and right. you know, pretty much every other country that has a lower rate than us, which is every other developed country. But the U.S. corporations are foreign operations. And, and so yeah. these profits that, that are moving the market higher right. and that we've seen you know, you right. know, basically uh, accruing to you know, the income of U.S. corporations, those profits are not located in the U.S. Right. So they're not creating capital in the U.S. They're not creating jobs in the U.S. They're not driving wages up in the U.S. And this tax reform 
will address that, and right. it addresses it in a very significant way. Right. So the the uh, the, the two CEA uh, studies uh, out in October, they, they talk about one of the big you know focuses is the increase in uh, possible wages in the long run from uh, what you're talking about additional uh, investment, and you've suggested that, uh, and the study suggested that maybe uh, you know there's a variety of evidence that shows that maybe in the long run um, uh, average wages would rise about four thousand dollars or more for the average uh, U.S. worker. What sort of some of the type of uh, evidence we have for that? Sure. Well, well, uh, what we've done through the course of two studies and maybe about 150 references and uh, with about 100 of those being peer-reviewed is we've gone about figuring out what the impact on the typical worker would be of this tax reform a number of different ways. Uh, we've, there's a literature uh, that Aparna Matter and I were the first uh, entries in that, that directly links empirically corporate taxes and wages. Uh, there's a literature that links... Uh, uh, changes in the tax code, as we were talking about earlier, to changes in investment. Uh, and then from that, you can sort of roll forward to how much GDP do I get out of that investment and what share do workers get. Right. Uh, there is a literature that looks at uh, what happens when you have a big tax reform to GDP growth directly. Right. Uh, this is the, the narrative approach literature that we talk about. And then there's this literature that looks at big, fancy uh, general equilibrium models, so then you stick it in and then you can see what happens to wages. And going through all of those literatures, we find that you end up with a, a sort of a wage effect in a three to five year range of about 4,000 bucks. Uh, but there are a lot of uh, papers in the literature that say that the effects are, are quite a bit larger than that. Um, you know, I know that, that some you know, former Obama officials uh, who told us just a year ago that we were stuck below two forever unless we you know, had a big expansive uh, right. infrastructure uh, program or something right. that they've been saying, oh, well, the, you know, those numbers are ridiculous, but those numbers are based on peer-reviewed research. You know, there's a paper coming out in the American Economic Review that gets a big wage effect, uh, and it comes from you know, really four different peer-reviewed literature. Right. You could get it any which way. And, and the way to think about it is, is just like, let's do it back of the envelope right here, right now. If the user cost of capital drops 15%, and uh, capital investment has an elasticity of one, then you get about 15% more capital. Right. Uh, and then that gives you, uh, you know, so capital is about 30% of GDP. Right, right, <laughs> and so, there you go. And so there you go. You know, you get, and then uh, you can very quickly go from mm-hmm. that to a wage effect like what we're talking. Mm-hmm. And so, so I think that uh, if we, we start with the puzzle, why haven't wages been growing like they usually are? even the profits are growing, the, the, the answer to the puzzles in the existing data, we've got the most disappointing capital deepening that we've seen in U.S. history. Uh, and while we've had the most disappointing capital deepening in U.S. history, we've had the most non-competitive tax code in U.S. history because all the other countries around the world have been cutting their corporate rates. Right. And so it's not rocket science to link the two and say, geez, maybe if we didn't have the worst uh, tax code on earth, right. uh, then maybe you know, we could help workers. And, uh, you know, you could argue about quantities, but you certainly can't argue about direction. And I would have to say that the the simple, obvious logic of that, which might, you know, annoy, you know, some Obama administration officials, but the simple, obvious logic of that is why there's so much political momentum for this bill. Because everybody uh, really understands, at least everybody, the Republican Party and probably a lot of the people who aren't going to vote for the bill today 
in the Democratic Party, but know that this is going to happen, understand that we've built this system that chases jobs overseas and hurts American workers. Yeah, which is, you know, you say it's, it is simple and obvious, and, I, you know, reading the CEA papers, I mean, they're, they're great. They're, uh, you know, pretty easy to understand, uh, which, which makes it a little more perplexing that, I mean, economist Larry Summers and some other economists have come out and been quite critical of the CEA studies. And I don't, where do you think the disconnect is there? How is their understanding of the economy different than yours that they come to sort of different conclusions? Uh, um, you know, I think that, that uh, if you go back and look at the beginning of the Obama administration and right. look at the kind of congressional testimonies that you and I were given back then, um, Obama administration officials were actually making the claim that things like cash for clunkers, those stimulus programs, would give us 5% growth uh, and that, this, that these big Keynesian stimuluses would, their stimuli would, would pay for themselves. Right, even. right. Uh, the wage growth that you could see in their budget forecasts uh, uh, because of the amazing uh, GDP effects uh, that they anticipated, right. uh, w- would give workers a wage increase far in excess of the four thousand dollars we're talking about, based on real, uh, you know, supply side models. Right. Uh, and I think that they probably did that and said that because they believed that. Uh, the thing that I think probably you know a scientist would be disappointed in is it didn't work. Right? right, it didn't work, <laughs> and, and, and so maybe that would make one question one's models. Uh, you know, uh, Reagan used to joke about economists that economists are people that wonder whether something that works in practice can be made to work in theory. <laughs> uh, and and, uh, and I see people who have such confidence in their own models that they feel comfortable disregarding evidence, and to think that, for example, that the amount of uh, sort of aspersion that has been cast on, like the taxes and wages literature by these fellows, uh, given that these papers are in peer-reviewed journals, right. then did they think that the journals should retract the papers? or what? You know, or, and why is their model so wonderful? What's the track record of their model that's so great that we should disregard this massive, modern, peer-reviewed literature? Right. And, and, right. and I've not seen a lot of coherent argument right. that supports that kind of view. So, so the, another area of disagreement on the, the corporate tax uh, reduction is the, the issue of corporate incidents. Do, does the corporate tax burden ultimately land on workers or, or shareholders? And the, the CEA papers uh, released in October go into that a little bit. And uh, my reading of the papers suggests that you know, in the long run, 50% or more of the uh, the corporate tax burden ends up landing on workers in the, in the form of uh, lower wages. And uh, I, th- I think economists are generally agreed that the more open the economy is to capital flows, the more likely it is that the, the corporate burden lands on labor. And so um, it seems sort of obvious to me that, you know, the U.S. economy is wide open to capital flows. There's no barriers to capital flows. The, the, we have a global economy now with uh, uh, debt and equity flowing across borders. So why is there disagreement on that issue? I mean, some, some economists like yourself believe that more of the burden falls on labor and other economists, uh, you know, believe a lot less. So why do you think there's that disagreement? It, it, it's one of the things that yeah. I'm most puzzled by, really, because uh, if you look at uh, like the Guvenin paper in NBER that came out in the spring that suggests that our trade deficit right now is about uh, doubled uh, because of transfer pricing by U.S. multinationals. That they, so, yeah. that they move their profits overseas. <clears throat> so the way they do that is they have this product they used to make here. Instead of making it here, they make it in Ireland. And uh, a typical game would be, let's say I take my widget, I make it in Ireland with my Irish subsidiary, and then I uh, sell it to the parent company here in the U.S., you know, Hassett Incorporated, uh, for $11, and then I sell it to Chris Edwards for $10. And so then the parent company in the U.S. uh, actually shows a loss because I paid $11 for something that I sold for $10, and the subsidiary in Ireland has this massive income because I paid $11 to them. uh, And uh, imports went up. 
because the thing that I used to make here, I'm buying from Ireland at 11. Right. And so the point is just that, that that shell game is really great for reducing corporate profits. It's why even though we have the highest corporate tax in the developed right. world, we barely get any revenue, right. but it also inflates uh, the trade deficit, right? right. And, and so the point is that, that to see games like that being so effective and so widespread that there's an NBER paper that, that suggests that it's doubled the trade deficit, right. and then to assert that uh, we could ignore those effects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and that just assume that labor bears the corporate tax is, to me, it's just not rational. And, and, and when I've been on stages and debated people about it, I don't feel like they've ever made much sense. <laughs> you know, I don't think that, that someone, you know, right. faced with the Socratic... Uh, Q&A uh, opportunity would be able to defend themselves with, say, the 25% rate, which I right. expect the Joint Tax Committee will right. use when they score the thing. Um, I don't know why people stick by that. But again, go back to David Ricardo. Uh, you know, he, he started writing about this 300 years ago. Right. And, and, and he said that the mobile factor doesn't bear the tax. The immobile factor bears the tax. Right. And in and the capital global is mobile. Right. Global, yeah, capital is mobile, uh, and so it's not going to bear the tax. Right. Uh, Larry Kotlikoff has this big general equilibrium model with it's a model of the whole world economy, and uh, they put out some uh, analysis recently that suggested that the uh, tax bill would increase GDP growth by about what CEA said, three to five percent over, over right. a decade or so. And, uh, you know, that, that that Kotlikoff model of the global economy, uh, it makes sense to me, but but if you look at the share of the corporate tax borne by workers in their model output, it's greater than 100%. <laughs> It's greater than 100%. And, and the reason it's greater than 100%, think about it. Uh, so if, if we were to charge a higher tax right now to, say, a, a multinational, like, say, a, a medical devices company that has lots of activity in tax havens and they're shipping the product back to the U.S. So suppose we change the corporate rate from 35 to 40%. How much more revenue do you think you'd get from the company that's already transfer pricing all their profits to Ireland? The answer is zero. Right. But how do they transfer price uh, their stuff to Ireland? Well, they, they increase the demand for workers in Ireland and reduce the demand for workers here. And so for zero revenue, we're reducing wages here in the U.S. So, so what share of that burden is borne by labor? Well, the answer is it's infinity. Right. 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 And, and, and so the, the sheer denial of these factors by the opponents of this tax bill is, is pretty stunning to me. But, right. you know, maybe uh, after the tax bill passes, which it looks like there's a good chance it could, uh, then we'll just watch the data over the next year or two. And then at, at that point, I think that if history is a guide, you're going to see a big increase in, in wages, a big increase in capital formation in the U.S. And, uh, you know, the contribution of capital deepening to wage growth will go back to normal. Right. Uh, and if you go back to about a percent, a year, uh, normal capital deepening, uh, normal productivity growth, normal wage growth, right. then, well, the average family income is 83000 right. 1% of that is 800 bucks a year. So how many years does it take to get to a $4,000 pay increase? Just about what we said. Right. Let's talk a little bit more about uh, international, uh, the international aspects of uh, reform here. The, the U.S. taxes uh, corporations on their their worldwide income and uh, the Republican uh, House and Senate plans would move to what's called a territorial system, generally taxing uh, corporations just on their U.S. operations. Um, just looking at uh, some data a few days ago, uh, it looks like the United States has about 4,000 multinationals. Uh, they've got about 33,000 uh, foreign affiliates, uh, but those, those companies uh, hire about 27 million American workers. So how would moving to a territorial system benefit those uh, workers and how does you know how, how do all those foreign affiliates help the US economy well I think that the one thing and uh, you know I've spoken at length about this in, in a recent trip to Europe with our friends that represent other countries and are worried about you know well, what are we trying to do to the foreign affiliates in Ireland for example 
where there are about 700 US multinationals that have factories in Ireland. And, and our, our view is that there are big fixed costs to locating a plant someplace. Uh, and that um, it's very likely that the next plant that these multinationals build will be located in the US, both because we have a lower rate, so we're now an attractive place to operate, but also because the territorial rules are gonna make, they're gonna have basically guardrails around the revenue a little bit more than we do. Right. Uh, but there's so many fixed costs to building, say, a, you know, a big factory in Ireland that we don't anticipate that US firms are gonna be shutting them down Right. and opening new plants here. Uh, but if you continue to operate a foreign affiliate, then what's gonna happen is that you're gonna not have the incentive that you used to to get the money over there instead of here. It's quite quite as large. So there'll still be some, because we're not the lowest tax country. I mean, two, two of the things that have sort of uh, struck me as you know, correct is that you move to a territorial system, the United States becomes a much better place for corporate headquarters, mm -hmm. would end the inversion. Uh, trend, right. um, and also that you know that, that a lot of people I think they view foreign affiliates as just these uh, these these entities um, that uh, you know take jobs away from Americans by say uh, shipping goods back to the United States. But you know my understanding is the the main. Um, uh, uh, effect or purpose of foreign affiliates is to expand U.S. exports to penetrate foreign markets, which ultimately, you know, uh, ends up being good for U.S. workers. So a lot of those, you know, the U.S. workers for uh, in Ireland for U.S. companies actually they you know help to draw exports out of the United States. Is that uh, uh, the case? Is there, it, in, in yeah. you know. In part, that can be true. I know that that uh, you know sometimes you get better access to a market, an automobile market, if you make the cars there right. and so on. Um, there's some products that are difficult to ship and better to make locally, like paint. If you know, right. there tends to be paint tends to be produced locally, right. like all all around the world. Uh, but again, going back to the Guvenin paper, that that if we take the the share of U.S. sales to total sales worldwide, right, and then say that's the amount of corporate income that should be in the U.S. as opposed to what we have. Right. Or if you take the share of employees in the U.S. compared to employees worldwide, right. say that's the share of, act of income that ought to be in the U.S., then you end up with radically different um, trade deficits and right. tax revenue numbers uh, for the U.S. And so I think that a lot of it is the shell game I'm talking about, but yeah. not all of it. You're right. In the in the CA papers, that you, uh, they talk about uh, you talk about uh, the, you know the substantial uh, tax avoidance or profit shifting effects from the, these rate uh, differentials, and you actually had an interesting chart. Uh, and one of the papers showing the the share of um, uh, profits earned by the, the affiliates of U.S. Uh, companies that is not repatriated that stays abroad, and that, that share has risen over uh, the last couple of decades. So that strikes me as a pretty dramatic example of, of the avoidance that's going on. Right, and and it's also like to go back to another policy that I can remember talking about with you often back in the early 2000s. That that back. Uh, uh, we had a, a repatriation holiday, you might recall, where we allowed companies to take their money that was offshore and bring it home for a right. low, you know, ticket price. Uh, and um, back then, you know, you and I were saying this isn't going to do much for the U.S. because unless we give them an incentive to invest in the U.S. by making the U.S. Right. an attractive climate, then what you're doing is just giving a lump sum giveaway to guys who have money offshore. And, and so, and that's pretty much what happened. I think that CRS did a study of. Uh, of like how much investment was caused by the repatriation holiday, and the answer was like nothing, right? right? And it was because we got these big companies that have lots of money, they have no trouble right. borrowing to invest in the U.S. if they wanted to, and the problem is not yeah. that the money's stuck offshore, the, the problem is that we're such an unattractive climate that they're not bringing the money right. home. And, and, yeah. and to let them bring the money home but not change the overall climate was just yeah. stupid policy back then. And that then. just goes back to the issue of, you yeah. know, corporations can have a lot of cash, like 
apparently a lot of them do right now, but the issue is investment. They're forward-looking. It's not the cash. It's the forward-looking incentives. And, and, yeah. and, and so, so what we're doing now is something like the repatriation holiday, but then we're making the U.S. an attractive place to locate you know, activity, and so we should expect to see a much different uh, right. investment effect than, than we had back then. Right. So let's uh, maybe switch over to talk about, a little bit about pass-throughs. Uh, uh, my, looking at the data, it seems like about half of uh, U.S. GDP is uh, produced by uh, companies that pay the corporate uh, income tax, and about the other half of GDP is produced by pass-through entities, uh, various types, proprietorships and partnerships. Um, the, uh, you know, the reason for cutting the, uh, the corporate tax rate, or one of the reasons that's sort of obvious is that corporate equity is double-taxed, the pass-through businesses, they only face the one level of tax at the individual level. So corporate equity is, is more heavily taxed currently than pass-through uh, income. Nonetheless, House and Senate, uh, the House and Senate bills do, do uh, cut the rates uh, on pass-through entities uh, as well. Do you, they, they take different approaches. Do you like either the House or Senate approach better on the pass-throughs? You, you know, I, I, th I think this is one of those areas where, you know, our position in the White House from the beginning has been that, you know, it's important uh, to address pass-throughs as well, because they're a big part of American business. Uh, you know, we're heartened to see that the NFIB uh, thinks that there's a lot of good stuff that can be supported in the bill, but we want, you know, the House and the Senate to work work those issues out. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, there's a lot of small business out there that definitely uh, could use a, a tax cut. Right. And if that happens, that would increase entrepreneurship and employment in the U.S. Uh, if you look at, uh, there's this... Uh, uh, organization, the Economic Innovation Group, EIG. If you go to their website, you could look at, they have a report on entrepreneurship in the U.S., and, and it's basically, you know, stunning how much it's dropped off uh, in the last eight years. Right. It, it's shocking that millennials are the least entrepreneurial generation that we've ever seen uh, by in terms of having started a business. Right. And I think that, that, you know, one reason is uh, clearly the, the, uh, the tax disadvantage uh, to business right. that's emerged over the last uh, you know decade is something that's discouraged entrepreneurship, and so the so it's important to address this. But but exactly how you do it, you know, we're fine to let them work it out, and, and then you know be also mindful as an economist of the idea that if you and I were running a business, that you know I would guess that every year or two we'd do a checkup and we'd say, okay, accountants, should we be an S corp or a C corp, or what? How should we organize ourselves, and what's it cost to change? And if you know, in this world of TurboTax, changing organizational form is not nearly as costly as it used to be. And if, if people decide that they want to change because of this bill, then that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so switching over to, uh, to individual taxation, uh, there, the, uh, the House and Senate bills, there's a heck of a lot of changes on the individual uh, side of the tax code. Um, I'm not. I'm not really pleased with the, a lot of the individual changes. It, it seems to me that you know, basic uh, micro uh, theory suggests that uh, it's the highest uh, tax rates that cause the most distortion or most deadweight loss in the in the system. And, it, and it's also true, I think, that the you know the folks at the top are generally the highest earners have the will have the strongest behavioral response to uh, to taxes. Um, House and Senate bills don't reduce uh, tax rates for folks at the top very much. Uh, uh, isn't it true that you know you would get more growth effect uh, if we focused a little more on cutting those top rates? You know, I, th I think that that the um, political process, the reality of the political process in a tax reform, is that if we were to go to every person in the Senate, all hundred of them, and say, "Okay, you care about it." Efficiency, right? Right. Okay. You care about equity, right? Right. Okay. And you know what? You, how how much of a weight do you put on each? Then we'd probably get a different weight 
for every senator. And so the legislative process, you know, and probably if they were to ask us if we were senators, then you and I uh, would, you know, as tax economists, uh, would probably side more on the efficiency uh, weight right than the equity weight, thinking that right. the efficiency would give you a lot of equity because growth would help everybody or so on. But, but we'd also have to pass a bill with people who disagreed with us. And so I think that what's going on is that, that they're trying to you know, collectively aggregate their preferences to figure out what the appropriate trade-off between equity and efficiency is in order to have a bill that can become law. Right. And, and I'm very respectful of that process. And while you, know, you and I might, might disagree about the top rate that they end up with, uh, I think that they're pursuing a strategy that will be right. successful delivering a tax reform. So, so let me su suggest the, the similar sort of thing to you this way, that I mean, there's a lot of provisions uh, in the House and Senate bills that seem to me don't, won't affect economic growth because they don't affect marginal incentives to work or invest. So the, the increase in the child credit, both the House and Senate bills uh, increase the child credit a lot, which to me uh, doesn't seem to, I, I don't think it will uh, uh, create any benefits for growth. There's a, there is a movement now uh, from some senators to increase the child credit further. Uh, that strikes me and that's not going to uh, improve uh, growth prospects at all. Uh, did, I, mean, I, I think that, that you're, you're correct that, that the linkage between the child credit and growth or changes in the child credit and growth is not one that I'm aware of having been made in an academic study. Right. Uh, but it doesn't mean that the child credit uh, you know, is necessarily bad policy. In fact, I think that one of the things that uh, everybody would agree about, you know, in this room is that, that we're not, you know, we might disagree a lot about the idea that we're going to equalize outcomes with redistribution. Some people here might want to do that a lot. Some people here might not want to do that so much. Uh, but we would all probably agree that we want to equalize opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. And so we would want, so, so if we get a kid, then we would hope that their opportunity to have a successful life in America would <clears throat> depend, or would depend as little as possible on their initial circumstances. And the, one of the things I like about the child credit is that it does, it is a sort of very Milton Friedman-esque way to equalize opportunity, that you're giving cash to families with kids and trusting in a Cato kind of way that they're going to be smart enough to use that cash wisely to help the kid flourish. Let's uh, just with a few more minutes, maybe we should talk a little bit about the, the whole issue of deficits and uh, and uh, and revenues. Uh, the Republicans have uh, set themselves aside uh, one and a half trillion dollars over ten years on a on a static basis for these uh, these tax cuts. Uh, one, the, the first thing I, I would notice about that is that you know even if uh, no tax bill passes this year, there's uh, looking at the CBO projections, there's a uh, ten trillion dollars of um, additional debt will be added over the next uh, decade, which is uh, remarkable. And you know, from my perspective, it's that's all an increase in spending um, that's adding that ten trillion. So to put the one and a half trillion in perspective, uh, it is much smaller, I think, than the spending uh, a problem. But so how much? How much do you think that there's a lot of discussion about how much of the, uh, the that static revenue loss will be offset by by growth? What's your view on that? Well, well, I think that. Uh, you know, let's let's just uh, try some numbers, right? So, if you look at the JCT score of the House plan in the tenth year, uh, that it's about 170 billion. Uh, the CBO's baseline GDP in the tenth year is about uh, 28 trillion, mm -hmm. uh, which means that the static estimate of the de deficit is 0.6 percent right. of GDP in the tenth year. Uh, if Suppose just because we're doing round numbers that we take the five percent in the three to five percent range as the growth effect of this bill, then you know five percent of twenty-eight trillion is one point four trillion. So uh, so you know that's a lot of money. And, right. and if we get twenty percent of one point four trillion, because that's how much tax revenue you generally get out of extra GDP, then you're looking at two hundred and eighty billion, which is more than the hundred right. uh, and seventy. And so now, granted, uh, 
you know, there's things that are expiring, and so maybe the true cost would right. be higher if you extend it and so on. But I think that if you think about the long-run effect of this, that it's not hard to come up with numbers where, you know, the, the tax uh, reductions are paying for themselves. Mm-hmm. But, but that 5% higher GDP, of course, comes from cumulative investment spending that, you know, doesn't lift it 5% in the first year. I've noticed that even in the, in the in the CBO projections of revenues as as a share of GDP, it's something like seventeen point seven, I think, percent now, and it rises to eighteen point something percent ten years from now. So you know, there's this natural rise in, in revenues as a share of GDP, partly from the the, the real real bracket uh, effect, people getting kicked up into a higher uh, tax bracket. So it seems to me that you know, Republican plans would just sort of shave a little bit off of that revenue stream, and you know, not necessarily cut revenues at all. Right, which yeah. also puts the the sort of panic attack uh, uh, that you see in some places in the right. press for opponents of this bill in perspective, right? So, so right. That if you're looking at you know <clears throat> a couple hundred billion in a 28 trillion economy out there, that, then to, the idea that something like that would radically change the future of America right. because of crowding out or something like that is just right. implausible and inconsistent so, with yeah. all the evidence I've seen. So, and, and let's go to that issue there. I mean, uh, so, you know, there's a lot of different macroeconomic models that are being run on these uh, tax plans. And, you know, generally the models will incorporate the supply side incentive effects. You lower uh, tax rates, you'll get more uh, work and uh, investment. Uh, but at the same time, some uh, models assume that the uh, additional government borrowing uh, will, will push up interest rates and cause a crowding out of private investment. And there's pretty radical, uh, different views by some economists in, in, in these different models. Uh, what's your what's your view of that issue? And will the I guess the Joint Committee on Taxation will be coming out with their own macro uh, a run of the tax plan soon? Do you expect yeah, it could that be coming to be out issue? this afternoon, uh, right? Uh, right? And uh, you know, so so I, I think that that. <clears throat> Just as an economist, I think it's important to step back and say that the appropriate way for a decision maker to form beliefs about the impact of policies is to look at a wide array of models, as we did in our two CEA studies. We looked at four different literatures and said, well, in this literature, what would you get? In this literature, what would you get? In this literature, what would you get? And then even within those literatures, we have tables where we show you exactly what the wage effect is for every paper that's been published in the literature. And I think that the correct way for decision makers to look at the evidence and then decide what to do is to look at the balance of the evidence and then think and then think about well are there some papers here that I should disregard uh, because they're you know based on old data or bad assumptions right. or so on um, but I don't think that, that we're yet at the point in economics where there's one correct model right. uh, but I do think that we're at the point in economics where we can spot an incorrect model uh, and uh, you know one way to spot an incorrect model would be to say, okay, well, if we were to take that model and use it to predict what would happen for any of the zillions of countries around the world that cut their corporate tax, for example, would it have predicted accurately what, what comes next? Uh, and uh, this uh, exercise, in fact, a recent IMF uh, working paper exactly went through that exercise and found that the models that give effects like the ones that we've been saying are the ones that are most consistent with the history that we've observed mm-hmm. and that the models like you know, what I would expect we'll see uh, from the Joint Tax Committee, which has been a while, I think, since uh, you know, a blue ribbon panel has evaluated which models they should use, something that probably should happen again, right. uh, that those models, I think, are, are very defensible models. I would definitely want to look at them if I were going to try to formulate my beliefs, but I think that right. they tend to give much lower growth effects because they don't account for the international capital mobility that's driving all the factors we're talking about. Look, capital deepening uh, wouldn't be contributing negatively to uh, productivity growth in any of the models they're using. 
They're, like there's no explanation for profit growth at 11% and no wage growth in any of the models that they're using. And so when they come out and they say, oh, there's not much of a growth effect out of this, if that's what they say, yeah. then you know, I would say, well, Jesus, there's something important that they're missing. Yeah. And the fact that the key crucial economic fact of the last decade is not explainable within those models is something that would give me pause if I were going to rely on those You mean the, op- the open capital markets? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And the transfer yeah. pricing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, last question. I, I think our time's just about up. Uh, the issue of the uh, a trigger. Some uh, Senate uh, Republicans are concerned about deficits and they want some sort of a, a mechanism in the future if uh, revenues don't rise uh, as much as we think they're, they're going to. They want uh, some of these tax uh, cuts reversed in the future. Uh, thoughts on that? Good idea or bad idea? Well, well, that's one of those things that you know the White House is, is staying out and let, letting folks uh, decide okay. what they have to do. Uh, as an economist, I could say, and I think you know, maybe you agree, maybe you disagree, but if you look at all the evidence that we assembled in the two studies that we published on the impact of this on the economy, I think that we should have a very high degree of confidence that economic growth will be higher by a good bit and that revenue will be a, revenue will be a lot higher than the static score from the Joint Tax Committee. Right. Uh, and if you have a lot of confidence about that, then if somebody who's not confident about it says, well, suppose it's not as good as you say, you know, what, what do you give me, that, then it's not costly to give them some, you know, some kind of concession because we should have a high degree of confidence that, that we've got this fundamentally uh, indefensible uh, uh, corporate tax system that's harming American workers right. and harming our economy. And if we fix it, then it's going to help the economy. And if you believe that, then you, know, you shouldn't be super anxious about the economic effects of a trigger because the trigger would never kick in or would be very right, unlikely right. to kick in. Well, thanks a lot, Kevin, uh, and thanks Thank a lot you. for your uh, great, great efforts over the years. I mean, I think one of the reasons why we're going to get a corporate tax uh, uh, rate cut this year, um, crossing my fingers, is because of uh, all your work uh, uh, over the years. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, we're going to uh, uh, take a, a quick break, as uh, then our, our next panel uh, will be up in a few minutes. Thank okay. you. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. I guess I can start now. Right. Uh, thanks again for, uh, for coming. We have a, a panel of uh, really top uh, uh, experts now I'm going to introduce them and sit down, and, and uh, they can go uh, in order and talk maybe for, for eight minutes or so. Then we'll have time for a Q&A from the audience uh, uh, after. First, we're going to hear from uh, Don Marin. Don's the Director of Economic Policy Initiatives at the Urban Institute. Uh, he conducts research on tax policy and leads Urban's economic research efforts uh, from 2010 to 2013. Uh, Don led the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center, a center that's very much in the news these days with uh, tax reform on Capitol Hill. Uh, before joining Urban, Don was a member of the Council of Economic Advisors and, and also an acting director uh, of the Congressional Budget Office. Uh, and I think actually when he was in that position, he headlined a, a Cato Forum on Capitol Hill, uh, which was uh, quite a number of years ago now. So Don uh, has taught at the Georgetown Public Policy Institute and the University of Chicago Grad School of Business. Uh, he received his PhD in economics from MIT. Uh, after Don, we're going to he- hear from uh, Will McBride. Uh, Will is a manager uh, in the National Economics, economics and Statistics Group at PricewaterhouseCoopers. Uh, uh, before uh, PwC, Will was chief economist at Tax Foundation, where he uh, wrote widely on both individual and corporate taxes. Uh, and before entering the policy world, uh, Will was a software engineer at a private firm. Uh, Will's got a PhD in economics from George Mason University uh, and also was an adjunct uh, on the adjunct economics faculty there. And our final speaker today will be uh, Cato's own Ryan Bourne. Uh, Ryan's the R. Evan Scarf Chair for the Public Understanding uh, of Economics here at Cato. 
Uh, he writes on a, a wide variety of economics issues, uh, including tax policy. Uh, before joining Cato, uh, Ryan uh, came to us uh, straight from London, England, where he was head of public policy at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Uh, and he was also head of economic research at the Center for Policy uh, Studies. Uh, he writes weekly columns for the Daily uh, Telegraph and City AM, another uh, London paper. Uh, he's got his uh, master's in economics from the University uh, of Cambridge. Uh, and getting to know Ryan over the years, uh, over the last year or so, I've, uh, he's a very fast study on U.S. Uh, politics. He does probably still believe that the British parliamentary system is superior to ours. Uh, but it is true that the British system has uh, resulted in a 19% uh, corporate tax rate, uh, much lower than ours, so it's got to have something going for it. So uh, first up is Don. So hi, everybody. Uh, pleasure to be here today. Is this thing on? Yes. Um, so where to begin? Uh, how many fans of our corporate income tax do we have in the audience today? Right, none? So, oh, no accountants here. I, I usually get at least one or two hands from people who, uh, who work in corporate tax accounting. Uh, so as, as Kevin described, right, there are a lot of reasons to think that our tax code has a lot of problems, uh, particularly but not exclusively on the corporate side. Uh, we tax uh, and public finance folks have been thinking uh, for many years about ways you could strengthen the code, improve it, make it fairer, simpler, and more pro-growth, uh, and excited that tax reform is on the agenda. Uh, and I think there's a pretty wide consensus that the U.S. corporate tax rate ought to start with a two. Um, the digit that follows that is a subject of some discussion, as you know. Uh, I'm old enough to remember the 2012 presidential race. Uh, where we had President Obama running on a 28% rate uh, and Governor Romney running on a 25% rate. Uh, and I always thought that we would end up at 26 and a half, which shows I'm naive. Um, you know, now, now obviously the range has been lowered, but you know, the idea of starting with a two makes a lot of sense, but you have these challenges about what the rest of the package will look like, uh, how you structure it in a way that uh, is both politically viable and economically good. Um, and what I'd like to do in my remarks is just be kind of like the reader's guide, user's guide to uh, the debate about the growth effects of the, of the plan uh, so that you can understand all the different perspectives that are being offered out there, uh, Kevin's and others. And um, so first thing I want to note is, you know, almost all economic models will show that if you do well-designed, obviously there's going to be a lot hanging on that, but if you do well-designed tax reform, you can encourage growth. Uh, and that reducing uh, tax rates on capital investment in particular, if they can encourage more investment inside the U.S., over time capital accumulates, uh, that should raise wages, uh, increase GDP, and be beneficial. So I think there's pretty much universal uh, belief about that. But then once you get into the details, right, a lot of issues arise. And so my first user guide recommendation for everybody uh, is to distinguish between uh, discussions of the growth effects of particular provisions that might be enacted, like cutting the corporate tax rate, uh, and the growth effect of entire bills. Uh, and that I think the policy discussion at this point should focus on the growth effects of entire bills, and that means you have to include the warts, right, not just the pro-growth things, but also the anti-growth things. Uh, and or the neutral things. And so in particular in the discussion at the moment, the things I would highlight for you is on the corporate side, uh, the movement towards full expensing of equipment uh, is temporary in the proposals that are out there at the moment, so last five years, uh, and so therefore would be unable to create a long-term boost to growth uh, unless it gets extended in the future. And then you can have a discussion about how you want to think about modeling things that expire. Uh, but obviously one of the things you want to do is to ask yourself what the world looks like if they expire. Uh, 
at least the Senate bill, if I remember correctly, I sometimes get the House and Senate bills confused, so forgive me, but at least one of them has a provision that makes the tax treatment of uh, uh, investment in intellectual property, R&D, less favorable uh, in the future. It happens in the out years. Uh, is isn't something that happens in the first seven or eight years, but if you look far enough out there to make their math work, uh, there are some things that are actually going to raise the cost uh, of investing in certain kinds of intellectual property. That's something that leans against growth. Uh, and just won't go through all the provisions, but just right point here is that if you want to think about growth effects, uh, think about the entire package, not just the parts that you might think are the most pro-growth. Uh, second is this deficit issue, uh, which is, you know, once again, raising, raging, not raging in the sense of people being wildly concerned about the effects of deficits on growth today. Uh, but there is this quite raging debate about to what extent we should worry that deficits would uh, crowd out private investment and undermine growth in the future. And I should say for the what, what I will think of as the mainstream conventional models, so think about what the fine folks at the Joint Committee on Taxation do, what CBO does, what my friends at the Tax Policy Center do, right? Their models have a significant amount of crowding out from running deficits. Uh, think about it as being roughly a third, right? So that if you're running deficits of $100, uh, about $33 of that is going to come from reduced private investment. Right Now, if you believe that's true, then the way you should think about uh, these tax reform proposals that are out there is as a race. Right? There's a race between whatever the pro-growth effects are of all the provisions added together uh, against the drag that comes from the deficits. The deficits obviously accumulate over time, uh, and so you very often have a result where you may get some short-run growth uh, and some encouragement of additional investment, but that over time the crowding out effect uh, is undermining that over time. And so we'll just put a pin on that, right? A second discussion we could have is, well, what's the right way to think about deficits? How big is that effect? But that is a key thing that's driving uh, many of the results you see out there uh, that the bills as proposed may not lead to that much growth. That's what my friends at the Tax Policy Center found. I suspect that's what uh, the fine folks that the JCT are going to find. And a key driver of that is this belief that uh, the deficits really do matter uh, and that they're going to undermine some of the positive uh, incentive effects. Then third thing to flag uh, as a user of these is how quickly the change in GDP and the accumulation of capital arises. Uh, if you look back to the analyses that were made of the uh, 2005, uh, President Bush had a tax reform uh, panel that considered various fundamental reform options. Uh, they put forward proposals. Uh, they analyzed them. Some of them show that if you went uh, far enough out in the future, GDP might be 2, 3, 4, 5% larger. But that, at least in those models, those effects were often more than a decade, sometimes more than two decades away. Uh, and so it was a very long-run effect because it takes uh, the capital stock a long time to turn over. And in fact, you heard Kevin give an example of that, uh, which is if you think in some abstract perfect world there are factories overseas today that should have been built in the United States, right? those are not rapidly going to come back here, uh, even if you make a substantial tax reform. It takes a while for that capital to be depreciated, to be used up, uh, and to eventually be redeployed to wherever uh, a company thinks it's going to be optimally located. Um, and so if that's your view of the world, even if you're an optimist about the potential for, uh, for reform, corporate tax reductions, uh, to encourage investment, uh, you may want to be humble about how rapidly that's going to happen, both how rapidly that's going to show up in GDP and how rapidly that's going to show up in wages. And again, there are many leading models out there that have a significant effect if you wait long enough, but the long enough is a long time. It could easily be 20 years or more. And then you could obviously debate about whether that's right or wrong, but that's what, that's what a lot of the models have. Um, and so 
Think about the entire bills, not just provisions that are particularly fun to talk about, like cutting the corporate rate. Uh, right. Think about deficits and whether and how you feel about what the effects of deficits on growth are. Um, and then feel, think about the tempo of this uh, and think about whether you think the, the effects would come rapidly or whether they take time. And again, this concern that if, it's, if the story is really about capital accumulation and capital deepening, that's something that happens year by year by year by year uh, as companies make their investment decisions. Um, and yeah, I guess I'll just leave it with that, right? So three, three key things to keep in mind as you uh, interpret this growth discussion. Thanks. Okay, um, can you all hear me? Okay, uh, it's great to be here. Um, thank you, Chris, for inviting me. Um, and uh, it was really enjoyable uh, just to listen to the commentary so far. And um, I, I will start with a, a brief, uh, briefly addressing that, um, uh, Kevin Hassett's comments and, and uh, Don's uh, response here. Um, I, I think the, the main thing, I, I, I agree with, you know, virtually all uh, of the things that have been said so far, but I want to point out that the key um, uh, thing to understand about this, this year's tax reform, tax cut discussion um, has uh, really, uh, it's really turned into a, a business tax cut um, approach that is financed in part uh, by individual tax increases and uh, and deficits, as we've discussed, so that's very different than the the, the game plan of say 1986. It was the opposite then. It was a corporate tax increase uh, uh, financed by individual tax cuts, and so that's important when we look at the literature um, uh, regarding uh, tax cuts and how they affect the economy. Um, so, which I'll go into uh, shortly here. That's what uh, Chris asked me to discuss. Uh, the the evidence of of these uh, changes, uh, but um, I just want to point out that um, on the deficit uh, financing, I I agree with Kevin Hassett's uh, comments that we should keep that uh, in in perspective. That this is something like two hundred billion in deficits in the tenth year, and this is in comparison to roughly a trillion dollar uh, deficit in that year uh, under current law. Um, Okay, so we should really be looking at what is the impact of these uh, business tax cuts and what does the literature say about that? Um, and we're talking business, uh, both corporate and non-corporate uh, pass-through business are getting really significant cuts in their uh, marginal tax rates. And through uh, this is mainly through their, uh, the cut in the statutory uh, tax rates that apply to them and, and through expensing of their investment uh, purchases. Um, so what does the literature say? So about five years ago, I did a study um, summarizing this, this literature while I was at Tax Foundation. And um, my, the idea was, you know, uh, then as, as now, there's a, there's a great deal of just basic disbelief that taxes have any effect on the economy. Uh, and, and this is not shared by, you know, most people in this room, I think, but you see it a lot in, in the reporting of uh, tax um, in, the, in the news and whatnot. And, and um, uh, so the idea was to address that by looking at what the academic literature says in this regard. So I found um, that um, when I looked at the most prestigious uh, journals out there, academic journals and, uh, and, uh, and studies published by uh, prestigious institutions like the OECD and the IMF, I uh, put together uh, 26 studies that uh, did address this 
uh, topic of what is the empirical relationship between taxes and economic growth. And so these studies are uh, not simple, um, not the kind of thing you whip out, you know, in a, in a morning playing around with Excel or something. Um, they're not simple correlations. These are, uh, you know, studies that are very rigorous uh, statistical um, approaches, and they control for all sorts of factors like government spending, business cycle conditions, monetary policy, uh, short-term versus long-term effects of tax policy, uh, and, re and reverse causality, where economic growth can have in, in turn an effect on taxes. Um, they use a variety of methods and data sources, um, some based in the U.S., some based in uh, Europe, uh, history in Europe, history in the U.S., uh, history of uh, uh, U.S. federal taxes versus uh, U.S. state taxes. Um, and the results, though, are uh, consistent in that uh, about 90% of these studies find a very significant negative effect of taxes on economic growth. Uh, so now there's different types of taxes. Many of the studies do not distinguish uh, between, between taxes, but of those that do, they, they find that corporate taxes are found to be the most harmful, followed by personal income taxes, consumption taxes, and property taxes. And, um, you know, this is sort of, this is consistent with this, this sort of uh, neoclassical view, you might call it among economists, that income and wealth must first be produced and then consumed, meaning the taxes on factors of production, i.e. capital and labor, are particularly disruptive to wealth creation. Um, now, I'll just briefly uh, mention some of, the, some of the major studies so the, um, that I covered there. Um, so first is a study by Christina Romer, uh, who, who was uh, Kevin Hassett's predecessor at CEA, chair of the CEA under uh, Obama. Uh, her husband and her uh, wrote, uh, published an, an article um, approximately 2012, I believe, in which they uh, came up with really a new method of looking at the history of uh, legislated uh, tax changes. And, they, and what they did is they, they call this the narrative approach, and they separate out these sort of, um, the sort of motivation behind uh, tax changes, whether they're response to an economic crisis or response to deficits or what have you, and, uh, or, or a specific uh, um, intention to affect economic growth. And so they're able to isolate the, the sort of surrounding environment in which these tax changes were made. And through that, they found a, a very large negative effects of taxes um, on economic growth, much larger than, than uh, previous studies had found. Uh, so, uh, they, uh, namely, they found that a tax increase of 1% of GDP lowers real GDP by three, about 3% 3 after about two years. They found the largest effect is from taxes uh, meant to change uh, economic growth. And the main channel is investment. And uh, they found the, their results to be uh, robust to various specifications. They control for state, the, the state of the economy, monetary policy, and the behavior of government spending, for instance. So another study uh, by Mertens and Raven, they followed up um, on the Romer study. They did the same narrative-style analysis, uh, except they distinguished between uh, personal income taxes and corporate income taxes. Very, very interesting result. Uh, they found that personal income tax cuts uh, more immediately boosted GDP, but they lost revenue. 
while the corporate tax cuts generated growth in the long run and expanded the tax base such that revenues were unchanged. They paid for themselves. Particularly, they found a one percentage point cut in the average personal income tax rate raises real GDP per capita by 1.4% in the first quarter and by up to 1.8% after three quarters. They found a one percentage point cut in the average corporate income tax rate raises real GDP per capita by 0.4% in the first quarter and by 0.6% after one year. So the effect of the corporate tax is actually larger per dollar of revenue than that of the personal income tax since the corporate income tax raises about a quarter of the revenue that personal income tax does. In terms of uh, so-called multipliers, i.e. how revenue or spending changes affect GDP, their estimates of tax multipliers exceed most estimates of spending multipliers. And uh, lastly, I'll just uh, touch on the OECD study, which is uh, or, or series of studies um, that they have done over the years. Uh, th this is uh, in a paper uh, summarized by an economist at the OECD, OECD last name Arnold. Um, they determined a, a ranking uh, of taxes uh, in their uh, analysis of OECD countries over a number of years and decades. And the ranking is that um, corporate income taxes are the most harmful, uh, followed by personal income taxes, consumption taxes, and finally, property taxes. Um, and so what they did is they looked at uh, 21 OECD countries from 1971 to 2004, controlled for all these factors we've, we've discussed, including physical and, and human capital accumulation, population growth, time and country uh, specific effects. Uh, they, over, they, they also control the overall tax burden of, of each country as a share of GDP. This allows them to isolate the effect of different types of taxes based on the share of tax revenue that comes from each tax on a revenue and spending neutral basis. They found that a 1% shift of tax revenues from income taxes, both personal and corporate, to consumption and property taxes would increase GDP per capita by between 0.25% and 1% in the long run. Uh, they found some other interesting results, such as the, the prog progressivity of personal income taxes reduce ec economic growth. Um, they found corporate taxes, both in terms of st the statutory tax rate and depreciation allowances, reduce investment and productivity growth. So I'll, I'll not go through all of the 26 studies that I looked at, but um, uh, it, it was surprising even to me that uh, going into this, the degree of uh, agreement there was in the literature. And, and I'll, I'll just lastly mention my process by which I found these studies, which was later uh, characterized as cherry picking by uh, some groups, but so I responded to that. Um, and in describing my process, I basically, you know, like I said, I started looking at the, the most prestigious uh, journals, academic journals, such as the American Economic Review um, and uh, uh, publications by the IMF and OECD and other major institutions. And then I just followed up the references to their, their, their studies. Uh, the, the, um, so this gave me an idea of what, what are the most important studies in the history of the literature. And I never, never, uh, you know, uh, threw out a study if I didn't like the result or something. Uh, I was simply just going down this path of identifying the most important studies by, according to how they influence the current, the current, uh, the most current literature, um, based on references. And so, um, you know, this was um, I, I, 
never claimed this was an approach that would lead to a totally exhaustive um, result of every study that's ever been done on uh, taxes and economic growth, just that this was identifying a, a large sample, 26 studies, um, of the most important um, empirical evidence on economic growth and taxes. And, uh, you know, I'll just say, you know, statistically, 26 is a large number, so you can, you can infer quite a lot from a sample of 26 studies. Um, and we can, we could discuss the possibility that there's, you know, there's a publication bias or what have you, but you could go either way on that, um, in terms of the sort of what, what actually makes it to a, pub, a major publication. Uh, so anyway, I think this is, um, uh, the bottom line here is that this, uh, leaves, should leave the, the, the reader of these studies with the idea that, um, there, there's very strong and consistent evidence that uh, taxes affect economic growth in a very negative way, and it, particularly business taxes. And I'm very happy to see that uh, our policymakers uh, this year are, are, for the most part, heeding this advice from economists um, that it's business taxes that matter the most for economic growth. And uh, again, this is a, a tax reform approach here that is cutting those business taxes uh, and large degree financed by individual tax increases and um, to a lesser degree by um, a deficit, which is in grand scheme of things, uh, not much greater than what is um, currently uh, projected under, under current law. So I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you, Chris. You're actually a bit behind the curve on the UK because our corporate tax rate is due to drop to 17% in the coming years, though we have a large degree of uncertainty about the political outlook there. Three types of economic analysis you'll tend to read publicly about the Republican tax plan. First is what I describe as distributional analysis, looking at the financial winners and losers uh, from the bill on a static basis. Second, the impact on, on the public finances, the effect on the deficit and the US debt path. And third is the more difficult question of the impact on economic efficiency and growth. Uh, my starting point is that this, this final uh, type of analysis is the most important, not least because the actual impact on the public finances of the tax bill and on uh, whether taxpayers are better off ultimately depends uh, overwhelmingly on these effects. And I think in public discourse so far, far too much attention has been um, given to the distributional uh, question. And I think that has some um, impact in terms of leading the debate astray. I think referring to changes in somebody's individual finances or looking at uh, the change in the distribution tends to put the status quo on a pedestal. It tends to treat a tax rise that comes from eliminating a deduction um, in the same way as it or indeed as the opposite of a tax cut achieved by reducing a marginal rate. And economists would think if you combine those two things, there'd actually be an improvement in overall economic efficiency. And I think importantly, it tends to lead the tax system being judged primarily as a distributional tool um, and then judged with every individual measure judged by the ludicrous standard uh, that any change has to be progressive at the logical end point of which is one taxpayer paying all taxes. So I think Chris and I decided to put on this event because we felt the far more important question on the impact of efficiency and growth was not being discussed enough, though that's probably changed actually in the past week. So what do we mean by growth here? When we talk about growth, we're not talking about uh, tax cuts stimulating the economy by, by raising an aggregate demand. Uh, Republicans have erroneously, in my view, 
um, highlighted the key benefit of tax reform as leaving more money in people's pockets. But that's not where uh, people like Chris and I would see the big impact of economic, on economic growth of tax reform coming from. In fact, very few economists would argue uh, that in today's conditions, with the unemployment rate near 4%, the Fed in the process of increasing interest rates um, and the debt outlook as it is for, for the future, very few economists would argue that deficit increasing tax cuts would raise demand and output very substantially. The real question here is the extent to which tax reform can improve the uh, potential GDP and the potential uh, growth rate of the economy by improving incentives for productive activity and by reducing economic distortions uh, in the tax code. And there's been a big literature on what successful tax reform looks like across many countries, uh, lots of theoretical papers. Uh, taxes should ideally raise revenues uh, to fund government spending permanently in the least distortionary way possible. We want our tax code to be neutral between different activities and we want it to finance government spending permanently and predictably. Within that, we want low, uh, marginal rates to be as low as possible to maintain incentives to work, save and invest. Now, how do the Republican plans measure up to those ambitions? Well, it's a long way from perfect. Uh, despite the rhetoric, I, I, I don't think now you could describe this as fu a fundamental um, overhaul of the tax code. It doesn't touch some major distortions in the code. Uh, for example, the exemption of, uh, for, for employer-paid healthcare. Or in the Senate case, it doesn't touch the mortgage interest uh, deduction. I think this new fiscal trigger, um, if it's uh, implemented in the final bill, adds substantial uncertainty and actually undermines some of the growth impact. If there's uncertainty about what the future corporate tax rate would be, economic theory would suggest that that would have a, a deleterious impact on um, the amount of investment undertaken uh, today. Um, as would the scheduled expiration of expensing of equipment. Uh, as Chris mentioned earlier, the introduction and increased generosity of credits will do uh, little to nothing for growth, but have been judged necessary to, to get this plan through politically. And as it stands, the plan is likely, in, in my view, to worsen the deficit and debt outlook somewhat. Having said all that, I'd still say that the reforms overall are net improvement on the tax code that we have today. They will ultimately leave the US with lower marginal tax rates on income, fewer and less valuable distortionary deductions, and with a much lower corporate tax burden. So put all of those three components together, and I think we'd expect this bill to raise the level of GDP, the extent to which is, is debatable. So we've heard a, a lot about corporate uh, rate reforms already. I won't rehash that analysis. Uh, analysis. Um, on wage rises, there is some uncertainty as to the ultimate effect. And some liberal critics have pointed uh, to the fact that the UK uh, cut its corporate tax substantially and hasn't seen um, sub a subsequent wage boom in recent years as evidence against the bill. Um, what I would say, though, is that the Republican plan is very, very different to what the UK government actually did with its corporate tax reforms, particularly in the early years. Whereas the Republicans are looking to... Uh, introduce both immediate expensing for equipment and also lower the headline rate. The UK government actually in the early years of tax reform reduced the headline rate um, primarily to try to attract profitable businesses to headquarter um, in the UK, but actually made capital allowances, capital depreciation, depreciation allowances uh, less generous. So even though it was relatively successful in attracting uh, profitable companies to locate, uh, Snapchat, McDonald's and, 
and Starbucks have moved significant parts of their operations uh, to the UK. That less generous allowance um, actually raised the marginal tax rate on investment overall, particularly in those early years. So the Republican plan is very, very different from what the, the UK government did. Um, and in my view, would be far more likely to have a positive impact on investment, productivity and wages. On the income tax side, I think it's been very, very disappointing how few economists have defended attempts to eliminate or restrict deductions. Um, both plans would um, reduce the proportion of people itemising to uh, below 10%. But the House bill was particularly bold eliminating a whole swathe of small deductions and even eating into the hallowed mortgage interest deduction. Um, both plans, of course, would also eliminate the state and local income tax deduction, though that's less about reducing marginal rates but putting the burden of, of uh, government activity to the states, which does improve incentives for states to reduce spending. Now, as I say, I'm disappointed that more economists and, and politicians didn't come out to defend the elimination of deductions, but you add that all up, and I think um, though the individual side is unlikely to have a huge impact on GDP, uh, on net we'd imagine it would be marginally positive, um, or at least the impact on economic welfare rather than GDP would be uh, positive. Um, and eating into those deductions, the fact that we're even talking about um, constricting some of those deductions, I think, um, is healthy for the future if we want to further look at the uh, tax reform. And, and particularly, um, given that far fewer people will be itemising, the political cost of restricting deductions in future should be that much lower. I do share concerns um, of critics in two areas, though. The first is the mess around the new treatment of pass-through businesses. Um, now, the issue of how you achieve parity in the way that uh, corporations and pass-through businesses are taxed is a complex one. But I think it's widely acknowledged overall that today corporations are tax disadvantaged. So given the large corporate rate cut, it didn't really surprise me that politicians thought for political reasons it was necessary to provide uh, relief for other businesses. Um, but taking that tax treatment of those businesses outside of the income tax um, and creating either their their own rate subject subject to restrictions as the House bill does or um, a generous, uh, what looks like an increasingly generous new deduction in the Senate. Um, I think that's really setting up a huge battleground between uh, taxpayers and tax authorities. And whilst cutting business taxes broadly can stimulate more investment, I think there's a huge in incentive for kind of uh, reorganisation of affairs, shall we say, um, given the, the changes in the tax framework and likely legislative uh, whack-a-mole to deal with uh, this now very complex uh, new component. Um, as an example of some of the unintended con consequences, which I actually saw on, on Don's Twitter feed uh, today, phasing out the deduction um, for service businesses um, will actually create very, very high marginal tax rates on certain service businesses as income moves above 500,000. So you get a lot of unintended consequences of this type of uh, thing. Finally, the impact on the national debt. Um, given the likely positive impact on GDP, I think the um, revenue reduction should come in at lower than the static cost estimate. But then assuming some of this stuff is made permanent rather than expiring reverses that. But I think overall there probably will be uh, a, a small increase in the debt to GDP uh, ratio. Does that matter? Um, well, tax reform without 
tax cuts is very politically difficult, as we're seeing with the uh, state and local income tax deductions. So if tax cuts help grease on net, help grease the wheels of, uh, of reform of the tax code, and uh, we do eliminate some deductions, uh, then there could be bigger long-term benefits, those dynamic benefits I was talking about. That said, I think the, U- the US's rising debt burden should concern us, particularly given the longer-term outlook. And though there's little evidence, I think, that, that this increase in borrowing will dramatically raise interest rates, and though um, entitlement spending is the key thing that's driving the debt, and this is a drop in the ocean compared to that, obviously starting from a higher um, level of debt uh, makes that challenge a bit more difficult, and Republicans are like, likely to find it um, that bit more difficult politically um, to reform entitlements given that they've been perceived to be comfortable with debt increases for these tax changes. So overall, the Republican plan, imperfect to say the least, but um, putting the pass-throughs, uh, pass-through issue and the, and the debt issue um, on one side, I think overall the plan reduces marginal tax rates, eliminates or restricts some deductions and lowers the corporate income tax substantially. Uh, it's not the comprehensive tax reform that should be left for generations, but it is an improvement on today. Great. Thanks a lot, uh, Ryan. We, we have run uh, over time, but I, I did promise some questions. So if there are some uh, questions from the audience, let's try to get through some of them quickly. Uh, down here in the front uh, row, there's should be a microphone uh, coming. I, I was down over here. What is the time, Ryan? Hello. Yeah, Dan Lieberman. I'm a writer. The one thing that bothers me is uh, when you I'll go to you when you raise taxes, you transfer money from people who already had income and a job to the government, and the government takes all these little sums of money and masses it uh, all together to uh, big projects like uh, enhancing the infrastructure. And they hire people, and so the money is re- all of the money is returned to the economy as wages, just as well as the wages that the people who tax had. So it seems to me that the purchasing power stays the same, the spending stays the same, the money supply stays the same when you tax. When you go reverse, well, we're not sure if the spending stays the same. There may be a, a speculation on the stock market, maybe buying imports. So I don't see where tax decreases. They may help people personally, but I don't see where they enhance the whole economy more than the government spending. Well, um, there the, again, the, the, many of the studies or most of the studies that um, I've looked at um, empirically address this issue by controlling for government spending, and they do find that the type of government spending matters, for instance, if it's a, t- a type of public investment, building roads, for example, airports versus transfer payments, which is uh, actually what most of our federal government does is transfer payments, just shifting money from one group of uh, people to another. Um, and uh, so it's the, the, if it's the money is spent on public investment, um, it, uh, it can make sense from an economic perspective to do that, uh, financed by taxes. Um, although at least one study I'm aware of that I summarized um, uh, finds the opposite, that even when the government spends the money wisely, if you will, on public investment, uh, it's a bad idea to uh, finance that spending with higher taxes, uh, particularly income taxes. I just say, I mean, I think your question went to went to the the issue of you know the money's just circulating around the economy. How can tax cuts help? Because it'll just 
go to different people. And uh, but you know, one way to think about uh, tax reform is if you reduce distortions in the tax code, or put it this way, the tax code now creates a lot of distortions in the economy. Money, resources go to the wrong activities. If the tax code could be more neutral, resources flow to higher value activities, you can see that overall GDP uh, would rise. So that's one of the benefits of tax reform. Uh, another question down front here. When the president introduced his tax proposal, he said, I would like to have the estate tax eliminated. I will not benefit and wealthy people will not benefit. I'm trying to figure out how that works. I do tax returns for people, and I have one very wealthy person who is going to save a huge amount of money from that. Can you explain? So, so what's your question? The question is, how does that work, that wealthy people will not benefit and Mr. Trump will not benefit? Uh, well, I, th I think the estate tax, um, if, I don't know if you prepare um, estate tax um, um, situations, but uh, my understanding of that, I'm not a practitioner, um, but uh, is that, um, you know, someone in the administration said effectively that uh, only morons uh, pay the estate tax. Um, and that's because there are a great many ways to avoid the estate tax with any kind of uh, tax planning. So. My understanding is the estate tax is mainly hits people that are unprepared, um, and so perhaps that's the origin of that comment there. Um, I'm not sure, but at any rate, I mean, it's I think, and you can't say that uh, this tax plan, whether the House or Senate bill, will not uh, improve the lives of so-called rich people. Uh, the idea is that it uh, will also improve the lives of uh, the non-rich, and so we're talking about which. Um, which group benefits more, it's debatable, but um, the distribution tables I've seen indicate that uh, across the income spectrum, the benefits are, are shared fairly evenly. Could, could I just come in on that? I think ultimately the estate tax question is a question of principle, whether you think uh, double taxation on you know, some, somebody's estate where tax has already been paid at an income level um, is justified or not. Um, but, uh, but what I would say is it, it's important to look at the whole tax reform package uh, in the round. And I've got a table here that looks at the impact of individual and corporate taxes from the um, uh, Joint Committee on Taxation 2019, when all of the provisions are introduced. Um, the percent change in tax paid, the highest uh, tax cut in terms of percentage paid uh, in tax is for the group 40 to 50,000 whose tax bill on average for that for that group of income is halved and that compares to a 6% cut for those with income over a million uh, dollars. So of course you can look at the law and expand that, extrapolate it through to 2027 and that looks very very different because some of these uh, tax cuts expire but on the in the years where all of the tax um, changes are implemented there are big gains to people right down the income spectrum as well. I just as one footnote on that, uh, JCT's tables don't include the estate tax, and so they don't include the, the effect that you had in mind. Uh, another question down front. My question is on the uh, corporate re reductions. Uh, we know from history that small corporations generate uh, breakthrough technologies uh, as well as add the most employment. So. My question here is, does the tax effect reductions really impact small businesses such that we'd see the, the growth out of them, or is this targeted mainly to big corporations? 
I'd say one, one point on that from, from my perspective is I am disappointed that uh, I've always thought that capital gains uh, tax treatment is very important to, uh, to growth businesses and, and startups and entrepreneurs in the U.S. economy. We've actually got a fairly high capital gains tax rate now compared to uh, the average uh, in the OECD, so I'm, I'm disappointed Republicans didn't tackle the capital gains tax rate. Uh, I'd also say I, I don't, you know, I think, I think uh, uh, tax, the tax reforms for the biggest corporations ultimately benefits smaller businesses in the United States a huge amount. The, uh, the large corporations buy an enormous amount of in intermediate products from smaller businesses. So I think when you uh, lift uh, large multinationals, you actually end up lifting uh, the whole U.S. economy. So I don't know whether anyone else has a... So just two things. Yeah. Um, so there's some evidence that smaller businesses are more responsive to having the ability to fully expense investment when they take it. Um, and so the bills, you know, would expand the small business-oriented uh, expensing, and that seems something that would help them. Um, and then obviously one of the burdens for small businesses is not the paying the taxes directly, but the compliance burden. Uh, if you look at any of the data on compliance burdens, you will see that small businesses, you know, bear a much larger fraction relative to their revenues or some other metric of their size. There's a little simplification in there by expanding cash accounting, which for certain kinds of businesses will make their lives a little easier because they can match their tax accounting with the way they run their business. Not a giant thing, but a small step in the direction. Um, I'm worried, though, that the pass-through thing uh, goes the other way in terms of simplification, where whatever the rules turn out to be, you're going to have a whole bunch of pass-throughs who are now going to be struggling uh, to figure out how do they qualify as good pass-throughs, not bad, bad pass-throughs, so they get the lower rate, uh, and that that may be pushing the needle the other way. Maybe let's uh, go back in the middle there, the fellow with the white shirt. Hi, I'm Ryan Bandari. I'm an economic policy advisor. I'm curious about the uh, territorial system and the impacts that that would have on a lot of companies that do transfer pricing and profit shifting, particularly like tech companies, for example, who are already paying maybe 8 9% at most in corporate taxes and how the 20% makes any difference to them. And why there isn't talk of a, you know, why the discussion of either ending deferral or imp implementing a global minimum tax has not been more forcefully addressed. Uh, I'll just say very, very simply, the 20% the rate matters for them because that's still their marginal rate on every dollar, say, that Apple earns. Every additional dollar is taxed at that um, under the tax reform proposals, 20% versus 35% under current law. So it does matter, um, and that's the primary reason it matters for them. They're they're not uh, depending on um, how these companies are organized. I mean, they, they may not benefit as much from say the expensing provisions if they're not capital intensive, um, but the rate very much matters to them, and it matters in terms of location, whether they locate uh, their production and their income um, abroad in places like Ireland. Switzerland um, versus the U.S. So I think it will matter. <clears throat> I totally agree with Kevin Hast's comments that it, it will cause not immediate changes in location. There, there are fixed costs of moving and everything like that. But over the course of, say, 10 years, I think we'll see very substantial uh, shift back to the U.S. in production of things like iPhones, for instance. I mean, I would just say one, one, one way to think about that, the whole tax avoidance issue is that, um, you know, some people say, well, Ireland's still got the 12% rate, so U.S. companies are still going to uh, profit shift abroad. I think one way to, I, I think that every rate point reduction matters. Tax avoidance is not a costless activity. It costs a lot in terms of the accountants and the lawyers. It, talks, it costs uh, companies a lot 
to uh, avoid taxes in terms of you know financial restructuring. Um, it costs them to keep more money offshore rather than reallocating uh, the money back to the United States, which they would rather do. So I think every point reduction is a reduction in, um, in tax avoidance or profit shifting activity, which will benefit, end up benefiting the, the, the government and revenues. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe one more, uh, this fellow down here in the middle. Hi, I'm Carl Smith. <clears throat> I'm a chief economist in this, in this Cannon Center. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about is um, uh, how we think about how deficits are going to affect growth in the future. And um, what, uh, at least I've argued or concerned, is that you know we're in a period now where interest rates are very low, uh, real borrowing costs for the government seem to be negative. And I mean, there's strong reasons to believe that these are at least fairly long-term or structural reasons behind that. I like the, the secular stagnation hypothesis. Um, if this is true, and maybe how plausible, you know, uh, you think that is, um, how, how should we like think about the estimates that the models are giving us that are going to assume things like a third of crowding out? I mean, I guess I'll just, just add it. I assume that they, the, the mechanism of crowding out is rising interest rates. Um, but if uh, interest rates are very low, interest rates are close to zero, and they're pressed near zero by structural forces in the global economy, there may be no crowding out. How can we like adjust our, should we adjust our thinking about what the models are telling us? Sure. So this is so this is an interesting question, right? So you have models which have been based on experience, and should we update them for the you know even more for the situation we find ourselves in? Um, so I would set to the side the interest rate thing, which may be the mechanism, and just ask yourself um, where the resources come from, right? So the government's going to go out; it's going to borrow money. Um, it's right collecting resources in essence from investors that would have gone to something else, and so the question is, what is that something else? Um, and so the models assume that about a third of that would have been private investment in the United States. Um, and so another way of framing your question is, is it reasonable to think that's true or could the something else not be, you know, none of it coming from private investment? And so there are some models out there that assume all of the money comes from overseas, right? So there'd be no domestic crowding out. Uh, you'd get a much bigger effect on U.S. GDP. Um, but you then, you then head down a channel of, oh God, now I have to distinguish GDP and GNP. Didn't we get rid of that 20 years ago? Uh, because yes, you have, you're not having a crowding out effect here, but you're having uh, foreign investors owning more of the capital stock. And if you want to think about Americans' well-being, you've got to go through the calculus of figuring out how that nets out. Um, or you have a question of, you know, it doesn't seem like there's any obvious way that all of it comes out of domestic consumption. Like, so I'm going to leave that to the side. But then there's, there's a view out there that, you know, maybe we're in fact nowhere near full employment and maybe there's lots of idle resources um, and that, you know, evidence in favor of that is inflation still very low, um, although some, showing some signs of reviving. Uh, you know, for those of you of this inclination, there's kind of like the modern monetary theory folks who say, you know, we could print money to pay for this, right, rather than, uh, you know, we're borrowing it and that we'll find a lot of resources out there. You know, if that were true, you could have less crowding out. And I guess the question I'd put back to you is, you know, how confident are you that there's a lot of idle resources that, uh, that could be redeployed to, 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 you know, for these productive investment uh, without crowding out happening. Great. Thanks again uh, for everyone uh, coming. Uh, uh, the lunch will be uh, down the hall and Cato staff will direct you. I think it's, uh, it'll be upstairs. Thank you.